In today's episode of Full Stack Radio, I talk to Ed Mann about the advantages of using Postgres over MySQL, common obstacles people run into in switching to Postgres, and deciding when to do work in the database instead of in code. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 40. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. Before we get started, just a quick update on some of the stuff I've been working on. My book, Refactoring to Collections, is coming along nicely. I had hoped to actually have it released already this month, but it turns out that writing a book is a little bit more work than it sounds like. So I've got a few examples left to finish off, and I'm planning to release it with a set of screencasts covering a lot of the content as well, and I'm working on a comprehensive set of exercises in the form of unit tests that you can work through to kind of really drill this stuff into your head. So it's going to be a really awesome product. I'm really looking forward to being able to share it with you guys. So if you haven't checked it out yet, head over to adamwathen.me slash refactoring dash two dash collections to hear more about it. If you're a PHP developer who's interested in kind of getting started with functional programming and kind of learning more about some of those ideas, this is going to be a great place for you to get started. So check it out if you haven't already. And here's the interview. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 40 of the Full Stack Radio Podcast, where I talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm your host, Adam Wyland, and today I'm here with the host of the Three Devs in a Maybe podcast, Ed Mann. How's it going, Ed? Hey man, yeah, it's good. It's really strange to be the host of a show. Oh, no, sorry, the guest of a show. Yeah, I mean, when I was on your guys' podcast, I don't even remember when it was, like maybe... I guess Maybe it was like mid last, last year. year, last spring, yeah. something like that. And it was like the most fun ever because I'm so used to recording a podcast being like a stressful kind of make sure I'm on my <laughs> well, game. We're just off air, we're talking about the double, you know, recordings you've got and all this <laughs> stuff, you know. Yeah. So when I came on that, I was like, I was kind of going into it with the same mindset of like, okay, I'm doing a podcast, you know, my brain is kind of thinking of it as hosting a podcast, but then it ends up being just like, super fun i don't have to think and it's great so hopefully you'll get to get that experience this time oh i'm looking forward to it <laughs> right on so um yeah do you mind just giving uh briefly introducing yourself and kind of explaining a bit of your background how you got into programming and yeah. what you're up to these days sure thing man um yeah so i mean currently i'm working for a, a, a london-based startup called mybuilder.com uh, it's an online marketplace for tradesmen in the uk and um, you may know me from the Three Days and a Maybe podcast, uh, which I host with a couple of old colleagues of mine um, from when we were back through kind of working on web dev stuff, typical, you know, brochure websites and things like that. And we kind of banded together after after that, after leaving, all of us leaving at different times and really kind of carried on through that. Um, so, you know, talking and stuff like that. So it was great kind of, you know, every week kind of, you know, getting together and stuff like that to talk, which is nice. And um, yeah, I mean, getting into programming, really, it was kind of, I think it was my my college, which was probably about 16 or 15, 16. I mean, before that, I'd done like HTML stuff and all that, you know, funky stuff like making simple websites and stuff. But uh, it was when I was introduced to Pascal um, <laughs> at the age of 16 and Delphi and making like simple Pong games and stuff. And it was really that was when I started thinking, wow, this is cool, like the power of it, being able to control it. And it just stuck with me. Um, then I moved into uni and went to Java and things like that and moved in. I mean, I always liked PHP. Um, that was one thing that kind of, was always the underlying, like, you know, oh, how can I do this in PHP? Because it was just such an easy thing to be able to use, you know, like what, you know, it was easy set up when I was like a 14 year old kid. Um, and then it's kind of progressed. And yeah, I'm still using it in the stack today, but it's yeah, still great. 
Right on. Yeah. So uh, kind of the reason that I want to have you on, uh, we talked about this a little bit before, but I've always been a MySQL user because I'm not like a super huge database geek. And that's always just been kind of the easiest thing to get rolling with. And especially lately with some of the new uh, additions and features that have come in like the last two kind of major, you know, MySQL versions, it seemed like a pretty you know, reasonable database platform. You know, everyone always used to complain that, you know, it was, uh, it had all these kind of issues with truncating your data and stuff like that, but it seems to be getting better lately. But I still kind of always have this, you know, wonder in the back of my mind, like, should I really be using MySQL? Like, what are my real reasons for using MySQL and what benefits would I get from maybe using a different database system? And I know that you use Postgres a lot. So, I was hoping that we could kind of talk about that and see if you can convince me why I should switch from uh, MySQL to Postgres. So I just kind of wondering, like, when did you get into uh, Postgres? What were kind of your first impressions and the things that kind of made you think like, man, like this is so much better than MySQL? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that with MySQL because I, I feel probably, well, actually, yeah, since I've, until I started at my builder, I was a MySQL guy through and through too. You know, it's part of the LAMP stack. So you essentially, you know, that's my data store. That's my data persistence store. And I use that and it's fine. You know, it does its job. Um, it's always around. And I think for me, you know, the, 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 I never really, you know, when you've got a data store and obviously you're working with it day to day, you know, you can find ways to use it and take advantage of all its different features and stuff. And then you look into other ones and it's like, whoa, moving data store is such a big, expensive thing. So I can understand, you know, like the changes can be quite hard, you know, like moving from one to the other. I mean, there are different tools and stuff you can move and et cetera. But the nice things I find with Postgres and we're really, really around kind of that there's the story of, MySQL and Postgres and it is good to kind of understand the backing of where they came from like from through the mid 90s because so MySQL typically came, well essentially came from the idea of speed quick you know not exactly anti you know SQL compliant you know we'll do what you know the client wants you know you know what the what the customer wants what we want you know from as a dev or you know database administrator you know we'll do it um whereas Postgres came from no we're going to be ASCII compliant we're going to be you know ANSI compliant we're just going to be a solid standard database which is going to look after your data whereas MySQL and, and this is where I think you were saying like with the truncating of data and all these bad things is like when it used to be MyISM as the data store underneath MySQL um, there were a lot of problems with that where it was very quick but it also could screw up your data um, and and I found that when I was progressing with MySQL that became a bigger issue so like it's only been recently that InnoDB has become the default standard data store and and I mean before I mean I was naive to think oh I didn't realize there were different data you know database types that you could use yeah you know, mean, until kind of pausing there actually like that's something that I don't have a great understanding of so what is kind of the big difference there yeah so I mean essentially so you've got my ISM so my ISM with MySQL was um, Essentially, it's it's all about speed. So it kind of doesn't do the ACID thing, which is the ACID compliance thing is that essentially a database that's ACID compliant allows you to store your data and everything in it is both atomic, um, it's isolated. Atomic essentially is it's like within a transaction, it's you do all or nothing. It, so whether you're doing, you know, with, within transactions, which are now available in, in ODB um, and in any ACID compliant databases you know you start a transaction you edit it you do a couple of updates or do stuff and then you you know you commit it if one of those don't happen doesn't happen then you know the whole thing gets rolled back consistency is where the data race is always valid 
Now that again is the problem with truncation and things with my ISM stuff, which is it could get into an invalid state. Um, isolation is that transactions, you know, what ha- within a transaction, everything is isolated within that. So when you're updating, say I'm updating a couple of things within it, it's only when it's committed do does anything else, any other process see that that's happened. So you will not get this intermittent state. You know where you've, I mean, you typically see, you know, when you're setting something and it's the whole typical thing with the threading thing where you're, you know, you're giving money, you know, so you're deducting from one account and you're adding it to another. Well, this is an atomic reaction. It should all happen, you know, out. So you shouldn't be able to, and also no one should see the money out of that one before it's gone into this one. Yeah. Um, and durability is that if the system crashes, the data is fine. So they kind of, to get the speed from ISM, it did things like full t- uh, full table locking, which is another performance issue. Um, and that was able to win with getting quick speed and everything, lookups, and but it did then take your database and really make it less safe to put your data. Um, but then what happened is Postgres was, t- it really did the other side and it decided, no, we're going to be asset compliant from the, from the off, which did make it slower to start with. So it was slower, but it decided, no, we're going to care more about your data. We care that the, you know, that the data is asset compliant, it stays within it, and it, it's safe. Um, and, you know, really, the MyISM stuff was fine, you know, with our small websites and everything, because you never get any problems. But eventually, you know, it, you, you soon mount up with these things, and these things become a problem, and you see them in the wild. Um, that's another thing with Postgres. Postgres doesn't have different database types. It's a fundamental thing that they decided that, look, at the core of Postgres is... This is my database. The database type should be the same. It shouldn't be different. You shouldn't be able to change it. This is fundamental to the product we have. Uh, it's all, you know, and it uses the same. Whereas with MySQL was quite, you know, clever in that it said, no, we can have different ones. So you can have different types, you know, like different ones based on clustering and things. And then when InnoDB came out and that then became acid, that's really where you can kind of look at them the same. And Postgres has sped, sped up. And to, to at this present day, really, they are very similar. Um, you can kind of consider, you know, they're both asset compliant in ODB and Postgres, and they're both pretty, com- you know, comparable with speed. It's just a couple of different things between them, you know, which maybe a nice is what I prefer with Postgres. Okay, yeah. I mean, you talk about the NODB and my ISM stuff. Like, I feel like these days you pretty much default to using an NODB database anytime you create. That's a exactly new database yeah. In MySQL. Yep. And I've never known why. You know what I mean? I've just known that like that's what you're supposed to do now. <laughs> and I think yep. there's probably a lot of people that are are in that same sort of situation where they know enough to kind of get their stuff working and uh, how to query stuff with the database. You know, do kind of. You know, some interesting things with it, but they don't really care to be a real DBA and really understand the details about how all this different stuff works, right? So it's it's interesting to get a little bit of the background there. One of the things that I feel like is one of the biggest obstacles for me every time I try and start playing with Postgres is they have this like additional layer that MySQL doesn't have, right? So MySQL just has databases and tables, but Postgres has like databases, schemas, and tables. And I've never really like understood exactly like when I should use a schema or when I should use a database and how that compares with MySQL. What's kind of like the analogy there between the two? Yeah, see, that's an interesting one, actually, because I think where where, where schemas are a win is, so you have a database and then within that database, you can have this extra layer of schemas. Um, and what that allows you to do is really maintain one database. So it's one product database, but have different sections. And you can kind of consider, I mean, like in the domain driven design kind of way, you can think of it as, you know, it allows you to have, you have your application, but you have your bounded context. So you have things that are separated out. 
you know whereas i want this to be you know this is the users and this is the products and things like that and you can have these in schemas separate schemas and what that allows you to do is explicitly have so so you get the performance of still being in the same database uh, but it allows you to have explicit boundaries between them so you can still if you really wanted to break you know out of that bounded context you could say i want to go between them yeah um, so you could and, like join between tables that are in that's different it. schemas you, yeah but you're explicit on it and i think that's the great thing about it is that you can explicitly search and go well we are breaking the boundaries here so if you really need to then you can but you don't have to and i mean the nice things nice is with postgres as well is it actually has inbuilt database connections as well so you can actually connect to a whole other database and do work so if you did want to do this within separate databases you could but that's really how i see schemas is it's kind of segmenting out your database into separate layers and and to be honest normally typically what you'll do is you'll just have public you know you'll have whatever it is it'll be the database then public and then whatever i was about to ask like i think that's another like random thing that people would might get paralyzed around is like okay so i just want to do this thing using postgres that i normally would have done in my sql and you know my app is called you know who knows like my blog or whatever right and i would just have a database called my blog well now in postgres if i have a database called my blog what do i name the schema like what is the convention for that yeah public is what people usually go public yeah public (laughs) is the default um you know and i think and that, that you know, again, like it's adding that extra complexity for a beginner. But then once you need it, when you start looking into it, I mean, typically at my builder, what we do is we have separated the applications out. So we have different APIs, but we want to share the same database. We want to keep it within that, you know, within that context. And it makes it more performant and easier to manage with backing up, et cetera, like that. So we have it all in the same system, but we have these different schemas. And, and like I was saying, like we, it allows us to explicitly say if we're crossing boundaries, you can see it within the query that we're crossing that boundary and that this is going to be a problem, you know, if we ever wanted to split this up into a separate, you know, completely separate application. Do you do that often, like querying across schemas or? No, we try not to. We, we, we really try not to. But there are some things with stats and stuff. This is this plays into the whole. And I think this is the whole story of my my not my SQL, my 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 you know, SQL database um, kind of thing is that you can do so much in the database and it's great but it is bad as well because you can really do some horrible things like you could essentially write a whole application using you know triggers and using functions and with postgres you can actually export out into it's got its bindings into like javascript you can use and things like this so you could write your you know these small little functions in javascript that are postgres that's great you know it's great because in some cases that's really useful you know for for certain you know specific things but you've now leaked that domain logic that business logic into your data persistence layer which is a whole other place to to deal with you know trying to test it and things like that it's can get really hard and that's um i mean that's a really interesting topic on its own like i've always kind of wondered like when do you decide to push some work into the database versus doing the work in code especially because you always hear people talk about like trying to write like you know, create like a database, like agnostic system where like I have some adapter and I could swap between MySQL and Postgres if I wanted to. But as soon as you choose to use Postgres instead of MySQL, because Postgres has features that MySQL doesn't have and you want to use those features, yeah, you're like bound into it, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. So, so like, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Like, how do you kind of decide? Yeah. I think that's kind of like everyone's dream. And I remember doing this when, you know, when I was back in the Code Ignited days and we had this, you know, lovely fluent SQL thing we could, you know, and it would, it would just build up the SQL for me and I would be able to like replace my data persistence layer. And I think I've become, you know, that 
I think it's too much work. Like you want to take advantage of what you have. And it, like you say, I mean, it's very hard to be generic. I mean, essentially, you're kind of neutralizing everything that you can get great yeah, out of. Yeah, you kind of have to go to the lowest layer. common denominator. That's it. And and that really doesn't, you know, play into the strengths of either product. Because you're essentially like saying, okay, well, you make my SQL may better do this, Postgres may better do this, but we can't do it because, you know, we can't be reliant that either can do it. But I, I suppose for me, in all my experience, I've never needed to change persistent layer. And I think it I think it comes from this kind of idea of, you know, being able to abstract and switch out things and it's great. But sometimes I'm like, no, I think it's we're using Postgres, embrace Postgres, or we're using MySQL, embrace MySQL. And, you know, use the my use the SQL that will allow, you know, take advantage of MySQL or Postgres. I mean I could be for me that's worked. And, you know, and I think that's the thing where I, I really do say just take advantage of what you have. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank our first sponsor of the episode, and that is Laracasts. So Laracasts is a de facto community and educational resource for PHP developers of all skill levels, covering all sorts of topics in the web application development space, from uh, getting started with frameworks like Laravel to building complex user interfaces with JavaScript frameworks like Vue.js and React. I think there's over 700 videos on there right now, which is over 120 hours of content. And Laracast actually has a special offer for Full Stack Radio listeners, where if you sign up with the coupon code FULLSTACK2016, all one word, all caps, you actually get 50% off of your first month. So you can get access to 120 hours of content for under five bucks, which is pretty awesome. And I think uh, once you check it out, you'll be hooked. It's probably the best $9 a month that I spend. I always find new stuff there to learn, and it's kind of my go-to resource for any new topic that I'm trying to learn. I'm always hoping that Jeffrey has done a video on something because he does such a great job teaching this material. So if you haven't checked it out, definitely check out Laracast.com and use the special Full Stack 2016 coupon code code to give it a try and get your first month for 50% off. Thanks, Laracast, for sponsoring the show. You kind of mentioned triggers and functions kind of as a sideline there. Do you mind explaining a little bit about like what those are in the Postgres world and maybe any other like in the database features that Postgres has that, you know, you like about Postgres that maybe MySQL doesn't offer or Postgres does in a better way? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that is a massive win with Postgres um, and, and if you take advantage of it, I mean, the PL SQL language, which is what you can write these functions in, um, is great in its own. But it does allow library like bindings to things like JavaScript. So if you ever wanted to write in JavaScript instead, all these functions you can. That is a great advantage, you know, if you prefer using something like JavaScript. And they've got bindings for a lot of different languages. Um, but really, for the triggers and the triggers for me, the wins on there are the uh, the when clause. So triggers are you know occur so so typically you know when you have you have your database and you know you may do an updates deletes uh, inserts and things like that and triggers allow you to really kind of event hooks you know where it's saying oh this has happened oh i care about that all right run this so you know when i get an update on this table do this that can be very performance intensive um when you get into things such as like say if you want to do bulk inserts on things or you know you want to do bulk updates i mean we've had this today actually at work is where i've done a bulk update and it's actually got a insert uh, like a log because you can do triggers on things such as like you know maybe we have a jobs table when you do a job update or a, like a big update on a jobs table but you have this trigger that for every insert or every update it now does a log you know the changes of what's happened between them so what happens there, though, is it's obviously every time you do an update, it's then doing these triggers as well. So what you can do with Postgres is you can actually use a when clause and it will only do the it will only execute the trigger 
if a certain condition is made. So say like I want to know when a certain field has changed value. So only when this field has changed value do I ever want to update this. Then you can do that, and you can do, it and you don't have the expense of it, you know invoking, in, like loading up the environment, especially if using something like another bindings environment, loading up that, executing the function, only to be in the function to say, oh, I don't really care about this. So there's like little wins there that really do help with performance. And that's Postgres only. That's as I'm aware, that is Postgres only. Yeah. Awesome. So when you're using stuff like that, one thing I've never really had a good handle on is like. So one of the reasons that I've always preferred to do stuff in code when I can is because it just seems like so much easier to manage, right? It's all in one place. It's all version controlled and Git, and, uh, you know, things like database migrations and stuff, you know, we have like a code version of that so we can check that into source control and stuff. How do you deal with kind of keeping all these triggers and database specific kind of stuff that you're writing kind of all bundled up in the same place so that if a new developer is joining the team, they can easily kind of spin up the whole environment? That is the very hard thing. Um, you can add it in migrations, you know, so you have the migrations which create them and stuff. And and I should have, like, a, let's say on like a little tangent there where I, I'm exactly the same. Like when I first, I was so naive to databases when I first started out, when I was fresh out of uni, I was like, get in the database, get the data and get it as quick into code as possible so I could do any, you know, filtering, any anything yeah. I needed to do. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I don't want to go in the database. I've just load all that up and I'll deal with it in code, you know, because I don't want to touch SQL. You know, it's scary. I mean, I didn't even know what indexing was and things like this, you know, for performance and stuff. So really, I was like, yeah, get in, do it. In, you know, and I was like, oh, this is really slow. Why is it slow? And then you realize, oh, because SQL's made for data this data you know stru- you know handle these data structures and it's meant for this um and you know this is where you do get into with triggers and functions and stuff is like how much do you how much do you put in to the database and i think it, it's a very really, it's a very easy answer is it depends but it's that's very hard because obviously it's it's case specific um you know there are areas like such as logging i mean people typically do that quite a lot where you know like i was saying there with triggers for oh okay you know if there was an update on this table it's always nice to know what happens to the you know the transformation so it's almost like an event log of work working out what changed and things like that um that's always nice that's a trigger thing that's very easy to do um but then as you say like oh why, why are we getting this performance here oh because you need to know that there's a trigger happening on this and things and and it is then going into the database layer and working out what's happening there because all these different things i mean one of the things i was going to i should mention actually is one of the other benefits i love about about well actually i really like enforcing in databases is constraints and invariance on data because i feel that you know, without a distribution of a lot of different applications, you know, the business like like fundamental business logic, such as I can only have one person like with my builder, we can only have one person who's actually been approved for that job. You know, if we have two people, then that's completely fundamentally wrong. The You know, the invariant is one person for this job. That's a fundamental rule for our business. And things such as that, I feel, should be enforced in the data layer. Now, I know that people will argue with me that, you know, really that's a business domain concept and that it's nothing to do with the persistence. But it's so valuable to have to know that at the end cause, you know, where, you know, with real life really what happening, you know, where you go through and you have a lot of different applications, you know, the logic of okay this is this is the most business critical thing that this doesn't happen is good that it's in the database yeah i mean that's a, a topic that has actually come up in some of the work that i've done you know in the last couple of months is choosing when to 
use the database to kind of enforce something versus doing it in code versus sometimes duplicating it and having to maintain it in both places. So like a common example that I've run into is, you know, I have some like entity that, you know, represents a row in a database, like an active record style model or something. Right. And you might create default values for columns in the database. But if you create a new instance of one of those objects in memory, it doesn't have those defaults until it's been saved and fetched back from the database. Right. So I end up having to duplicate that kind of default logic in code and in the database. And then it begs the question, well, you know, if nothing's going to get into the database until it gets through the code and the code is enforcing the defaults, is it worth duplicating it in the database and making sure that I don't forget to kind of update it in both places. And, you know, from a data integrity perspective, it sounds like obviously the smart thing to do. You never know when you're going to have to like run some manual query to do something to fix some bug or whatever. Right. And you, you want to make sure that, if you can kind of bake some of that logic into the database to avoid those sound of to avoid making a mistake, you know, and, and invalidating some invariant there that you can, but it is, it is an interesting kind of thing. So when you're relying on the database for stuff like that, do you run into situations where you have to duplicate that in code as well? And do you have any strong opinions about how to kind See, of that? That, that? is interesting. Yeah, that's true. And, and this is the thing where it's the leakage, you know, where you're essentially moving business logic onto the database layer um, and I think I'm very I would say be very specific on is how critical is it that this you know be in the database layer because as you say you're gonna have to remember to replace this you know you, if things update you know within the data with you know the worst thing is is you update it in the application but you don't update it in the database and then boom things are going wrong um, you know and it just all goes you know to pot so I would say again it depends on it but I would I would definitely say try to do as less as possible. You know, try and get as much done in the application as you can. But if there are certain things that really you fundamental to your business, to that product, to that concept, you know, then I would put them in because they do save you. And, you know, that's the thing. Like with, um, and I think this happens a lot with, you know, distributed, you know, different applications access in the data store or within, you know, again, when you run, like if you start using more fun- functions and things like that, you need to maintain these invariants. Yeah. For sure. So here's here's something that I've run into a bunch of times that is something I end up doing in code that I almost wish I didn't have to do in code because a lot of the time it ends up being a really poorly performing thing. Yep. Um, dealing with soft deletes and like cascading issues with soft deletes. Have you ever dealt with anything like that? Like say you want to uh, delete some blog post and you want to delete all the comments that are associated with it if you just want to do it straight up delete you can do that with like foreign key cascade rules right which is straightforward but if you are using soft deletes in your system and you just want to like kind of mark the post as deleted and then go through and mark all the comments as deleted it sucks to have to like now write all the code to do that if you decide you know midway through a project that now you want to do soft deletes where before the database was handling that have you ever you know, run into this problem? Is there a way to do that in the database? Yeah. So, I mean, with, with soft delete, it's interesting because uh, back when I was doing a lot of um, freelance stuff, soft deletes is a great thing, especially with clients who, you know, they accidentally delete stuff. It's like, no, it's safe still. We've got it, you know, and all that. Um, yeah. I mean, with triggers and things like that, you can do soft deletes and you can mimic the same actions, you know, where as if this is changing, then do certain things such as, you know, cascade down on whatever the comments of that post or whatever's happening. Um it's also interesting when you say with soft deletes, actually, because there's a lot around indexing and things like that, um, that, you know, 
I think kind of going off to tangent here, but like indexing with like these things is very important. And that's another thing with Postgres that I feel has a lot more benefits with partial indexing and things like that. Okay, cool. Can you kind of explain that a little bit more? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm going off in a tangent and I was thinking, I'm off in a tangent here. Uh, Yeah, so no, with partial indexing. So essentially, so uh, the concept of an index is, um, well, this is again, part of the story is, you know, so I was naive. The data store is everything. Sorry, the data store, get in, get out as quick as possible and then do it all in code because code's safe uh, for me, you know, and then I then I come into the fact that I was like, oh, but it's not that performant, you know, and, and all these things and like searching for these things takes a lot longer. Or maybe in my dev environment, it's like, oh, but I've only got, you know, say you've got like blo- a couple of blog posts and you're like, oh, yeah, it's like five blog posts and you do it on the dev and you're just testing it and it's like really quick and it's great. And then you run it on on, on production and it's like got million, you know, just millions of rows maybe. And you're like, this is really slow. And then you realize, ah, okay, so there's this thing called indexing and indexing makes it quicker. And essentially all I learned from the MySQL days, and this is because MySQL, all you really can do is just say, stick an index on a, a, a on a field, so soft delete. So, you know, I've got maybe aware criteria. So give me all the posts that aren't deleted. So where the soft delete is not equal to one. So, you know, I don't or equal to true. You know, so I don't have, it gives me only the ones that are still available. Um, you know, what would happen there is it would have to sequentially go through every row finding the ones that made sense and do page writes and all these things internally and stuff. It takes a long time to do that. So what you do is you set up an index and the index stays up to date with the current database representation of what's in there. And it will say, you know, in, in a nice B tree, in a nice data structure what format, it will be store only the records or links to the records that maintain, you know, that maybe are the ones that don't have you know, soft deletes. So if you have a lot of, ta- you know, a lot of soft deletes in a table, you don't have to do a sequential scan anymore. You don't have to go through each record. You can just go to the index, find the ones that actually matter, and then go through. That's great. That's a win. Then index gets indexes get a little bit fuzzy because that works well if, like, uh, well, it work, indexes work well when you have very, um, un- well, you have unique data. So it works well that, you know, maybe IDs. So all IDs are indexed. You know, it's very quick to be able to do a SQL query and get by ID because it's indexed and it's unique. So it's very easy in the the data structure that they're using to be able to search through, find it. It doesn't work very well with common values. And common values such as, you know, if you have soft deletes and deletes and things like that can get quite, you know, you, you will get a lot of values. Maybe I want to search, you know, I want this index and I want it to have index only on the soft deletes. Okay, but that's fine. But you're going to be storing, you know, all soft deletes that are both, you know, are soft deleted and they're not soft deleted. And really, the SQL query optimizer may think, well, I'm not even going to bother using this query, but this um, index because it's pointless to me. It's so big and it's not, you know, worth. I might as well do sequence scans again. But what you can do with Postgres is you can use things called partial indexing. And partial indexing says, I would only like to index the records that where the soft delete is equal to zero. And what that then does is it firstly minimizes that data set where it's actually storing and it makes it far more, you know, far more enticing for the query optimizer to go, oh, actually, I will use your index because it's very small. It's very specific to what I need and I'll be able to find them really quickly. And partial index, yeah, it's, it's such a great thing, but and it's not available in MySQL and, and it becomes such a powerful thing when you do get larger data sets. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Like indexing is a a thing that's always been like a black art to me, right? Like kind of like I think you were you were talking about it in your earlier days where, you know, I know that, okay, I need to be able to look something up by this column and it's slow, so I should index that column. That's exactly it. Yeah. Uh, when it's slow, index it. That's the first and that's, rule. <laughs> and that's about all I know, right? But um, I, I've always kind of like wondered about some of the details there. So like if you're doing like 
say you're doing like some sort of query that has like two where clauses, right? That's going to use two columns and you have both those columns indexed separately. Is that still, does that still help, you know, the SQL engine, like find that data, even though it hasn't like indexed them combined, you know what I mean? Like I don't have a really great mental model of like what it's doing and how it's working. So if that's something that you know more about, I'd be really interested in hearing yeah so i mean this is something that i mean this is again my my foray into postgres and stuff really has kind of got me more interested in this and there's some great talks i'll uh i'll send you um so you can put in the show notes and stuff because really interesting about these things because yeah to be honest the my sql and the database structures you know sql is a great declarative language that hides a lot of complexity and then when you're going to the explain analyzes and explains and you look and you're like whoa what's happening what is this an index scan and then it's doing all these joins a hash join a you know sequence scan and all this and then you learn like oh but everything on index is good and things but then you realize actually it all depends again <laughs> so with, with again this is going to be the thing it all depends um so with uh index so no so sorry so with actually how it works so say in, in that example there which you're giving me um I, I don't know if this is specific in my uh only to postgres I, i'm sure it's, it's similar in all relational databases um, i'm sure this is how my sql do it but it needs to work out what the optimum query, opt- you know, what optimum path to get this information is. So from jobs, I want all the ones that are soft delete equal true and maybe that are, you know, I don't know, in this certain category. Sure. Okay, we've got indexes on both those things, uh, separate indexes. That's fine because what we're going to do first is we're going to work out and it, it, what it does is it keeps an, a log of heuristics of how big the table is. So it's going to work out which of these indexes is the quickest I can get the least you know, amount of stuff out of. So maybe soft deletes. Oh, we've got this really cool index here. It's soft deletes. It's only going to give me back 15 rows. All right, okay. Use that soft delete index first. So now we've only got 15 rows. And from those 15 rows, it'll go, oh, and it's great. It's like, I've even got an index on this. This is even better on the category. Oh, I'll just get those ones now and that's it. So it will be able to do these clever things of working out which is the most efficient one to use. Sometimes you have to massage it a little bit and it, you know, kind of work out, okay, look, your query planner is not exactly doing what I want it to do and kind of aid it. But typically the query planner is, it's just amazing beast that works and picks the, the correct thing for you. Um, but you do have to be careful what indexes you, you make. And that that's something that I, again, was the black box of like, oh, just chuck an index on it. It'd be quicker then. That's a cost. Um, every time something's happening with that table, if it's a hot table, meaning that it gets updates a lot, that index is having to be re-hit, re, you know, recalculated every time. And again, with partial indexes, that's what makes partial indexes so great as well, is I only care about, in my in my partial index on soft deletes, I only care about ones that are deleted or not deleted. So I can split, you know, I don't have to worry about if there's a zero, you know, if, if something that's been deleted, I don't need to re-index because I only care about the ones that are not deleted and things like that. So you have to be careful. But essentially, that's what happens with, you know, filtering down the data. And once it's got the data, then it does joins. And, you know, when you do joins, so I want the job and then I want the jobs, you know, maybe category, the category from it now. So I want to link that to the to the job um, or something. And and what you'll then do is it will then do a certain different things. Now, I know MySQL only does one of these, and I think it's the it's in a loop so essentially it finds it finds the one that's got the least amount of rows on it you know uh you know maybe the jobs because we know we've only got like say five jobs and it will go through each one of these searching in the other one what one or no it'd be the other way around sorry it'll, it'll get the biggest one and search in the, the smaller one which one and essentially you can think of that as a double for loop yeah you can almost it, it visualize it as for each one of these for each one of these search and find if it matches um but then 
my C, uh, Postgres is quite nice where it has other ones, which is such as sort joins uh, and hash joins. And sort joins is a really nice, beautiful thing where it sorts one of the lists firsts using something like a quick sort or something like that. So it's really quick, um, dependent actually, I suppose, on how big your data set is. And, and also, all, I should really put a caveat on this. All this depends also on, you know, how big your data set is, because in some cases it may all fit in memory. And then all this work, it's like, well, I don't care. I don't care about doing random, you know, uh, page scan, like, pay, you know, sequence scans and things like this. I don't care about doing random scans. I can just pick up anything I want. So the query may change. But in, in kind of a base sense, you know, what it will do is it will work out the most optimum thing to try and get as little out as possible. Very interesting. Yeah, I think that really helps me kind of get a better understanding, I guess, of of what it's doing and you know, when you would do it a certain way and when you wouldn't. And the partial indexing thing really does sound interesting because I certainly think of a lot of situations where, you know, I need to create an index on some column, but like it's only because I'm querying for the specific value. So that's exactly it. And and sometimes, I mean, with index scans, essentially, sometimes you can really just actually use the index because sometimes you just need the ID back or something and you'll never even hit the table. It will just be the index that you're using, which is even better. And is it smart enough to kind of do that for you? By default, if you're just doing like a select, yeah, it'll work out. Like it, it knows, you know. I mean, some some cases, what you do is if you do want to use the index scan, is you'll do it like within, uh, you know, a subquery where you'll be like, look, select the ID from this, and because it knows it's got the index, the ID is indexed, it will only get it from the index and never even hit the disk or never even hit the SSD. It'll be a memory, which is which is a win, and it's it's already pre-computed for you. Yeah. Awesome. Just wanted to take another quick break to thank our second sponsor of the show, Rollbar. So one of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors, of course, right? You know, either you rely on your users to report errors or you're digging through log files trying to figure out what went wrong or... Maybe you're hooked up to an existing tool and you got millions of alerts flooding your inbox all day long. Uh, Rollbar is like a full stack error monitoring solution. And with Rollbar, you get the context, insights, and control that you need to find and fix bugs faster with a lot less noise. So Rollbar is really easy to install. You can start tracking production errors and deployments in eight minutes or less. It works with all major languages and frameworks, including Ruby, Python, JavaScript, PHP, Node, iOS. You know, you get the picture. If you're a Laravel developer, like myself, there's actually a package that you can use that integrates with Rollbar really quickly. I'm actually experimenting with it right now because I'm planning on switching uh, Nitpick CI, the SaaS app that I run, over to Rollbar for my error handling. So in a future episode, maybe I'll give you an update on how that went. But so far, experimenting with it has been uh, really fun and I've really been enjoying it. So Rollbar also integrates with a lot of different other tools, like it can send your errors to Slack or HipChat or create new issues in GitHub, Jira, and stuff like that. And uh, for full stack radio listeners, Rollbar actually has a special offer where if you sign up at rollbar.com slash full stack radio, you get access to their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So you get like 300,000 errors tracked for free. So give Rollbar a try. Head over to rollbar.com slash full stack radio to try out the bootstrap plan. And thanks to Rollbar for sponsoring the show. One of the other big features, I guess, that um, had me excited about Postgres for a long time before MySQL 5.7 was all the JSON support and kind of like the unstructured document stuff. Have you played with that much in Postgres? Yeah, so we use it quite a bit. Um, and, and again, it's that whole thing where, I don't know about you, but I... I I never really got on the NoSQL bandwagon too much. Um, I kind of stayed away from it, um, you know, like document stores and data, you know, document-based stores yeah. with Mongo and things like that. And I was always kind of a bit pessimistic because 
I understand the value in certain cases, such as like graphs and things like that using Neo4j and things. But I was always like, a relational data, people, it's the cool thing. Like relational databases have been around for so long now, they're not very cool. You know, it's like, oh, well, they're just a relational database, you know. But they do so much for you and stats and things like that and, and being able to compute, you know, queries that people ask, you know, business, you know, and business people will want certain things and you'll be able to easily quickly get it because the way that it stores generically a very good optimum way for it to be queried. Um, but then, yeah, sometimes you do need unstructured data. Uh, sometimes it's great, like, say, you know, maybe I have, again, let's do a jobs example or a post example. And I have metadata on that. Now, yeah, I that's that's that exactly and, where I run into it the most yep. is is data where like the user is kind of in charge of the structure of it so like i was building a little tool like a couple years ago for my fiance to kind of manage her resume and it made no sense for me to try and do that in a relational way because everyone's resume is is different you know what i mean or um you know capturing like maybe like form submissions where like these are just forms that some user has created and everyone's form might have a different field and i've run into situations where i've stored json in mysql anyways even before 5.7 came out and i couldn't query it in any interesting way and i didn't really need to because all i needed to do was pull the data out and that's it once you get the idea you can pull it out and then and, and, you know decode it and do what you need yeah, to do with it because i never needed to query across multiple records because i i always treated them as basically like binary data you know what i mean i didn't care about what was in it i just needed to get it out and then display it back in, in some way but it always still kind of felt dirty compared to being able to do it somewhere where there's like a dedicated you know yep. data type for it so, I mean, it's interesting. So, yeah, so with, with JSON and that, you know, this unstructured data, it's been around. I mean, data data types, this is another thing with Postgres. The data types are so rich. Um, you know, data types within Postgres, we actually have Booleans. That's one thing with MySQL <laughs> I've never understood. It's an alias to a tiny int, and it's so annoying that, you, you know, Boolean is a simple type. You know, why can't we just have it, you know? Um, and then, like, we have, like, UUIDs, which is great in the world, you know, when we're doing the DDD stuff and things like that, where everything, the idea, you know, of, of having this unique identifier, you can store UUIDs and it will validate them and, you know, you will do effective searches on them, which is great. Another win, you know, where you don't have to just store it as a varchar and just, like, you know, hope that the data isn't, you know, t- the integrity of it stays the same. Um, and then you also had arrays. And arrays were, like, something I was like, whoa, before the JSON stuff coming, I was like, this is so cool. I have arrays. Finally, Instead I have like arrays. serializing like, PHP this arrays. This is it. Like- <laughs> Serialize- that's it. Exactly. Serializing a PHP array or, you know, just imploding it and things like that. And I was like, I can just use an array. And I can actually search within this array in a query. And, and yeah, these perfor- some maybe the performance of them isn't that great. But sometimes you do just want to be able to quickly get something out. And you can actually do it like that. Um, and then you had things like HStore, which was a key value. So it was just a simple, here's a key, here's a value, which is a very you know, a top level JSON object. Yeah. And then finally we got JSON. And that was probably last year or a couple of years ago. And I think that's another thing with Postgres. I do feel that Postgres is before MySQL. You know, things happen in Postgres. They like moving quickly and then they get them and then eventually MySQL gets them. Um, but, you know, so so with, with Postgres, you know, they got JSON uh, objects and JSON was great. And it was, it stored the JSON as you, as you, you know, passed it in. So essentially it was kind of just like a varchar. Um, you could do some analysis on it and stuff, but it wasn't until JSON B came out, which is the JSON binary format last year, which, where it actually stores it in a very efficient manner, similar to like how Mongo and things does it. I yeah. know it does BSON, Mongo does, but it stores it in a very far more efficient manner that's when you get some true benefits because although JSON is unstructured, you know, you can query it. And, and it turns out, and the test I've done and playing, 
you know, I, I always used to bash and I always think, oh, you know, unstructuredness, you still have to do indexes on it. And you do, like if you want, you know, eventually you're going to, if you have like queries that you're going to want to do on this unstructured data, you're going to have to have indexes to make it quicker mm-hmm. to be able to pick up this data, like similar with anything, with any relational database as well. But I found that the tools that you get now with JSONB and being able to now invite a 9.5, I think it is set in JSON as well. So not only can you now read it, pass it and things like that, it's also able to update JSON as well internally in the database as opposed in query base. Because beforehand, what you could do is you could do selects and you could do searches and all these funky things on it, but you couldn't actually update within the queries. Yeah, you'd have to you'd like have overwrite to, the whole column. That's down. it. You'd have to put it exactly. And you'd still be then loading up in PHP, JSON, you know, decoding it, bringing it all into memory just to then dump mm-hmm. it again and it just seems such a waste um so yeah i mean again it's like it's great i mean they now joke you know they they joke now look we've you've got both a relational database and a document base base uh, database you know within one and it's it's true i mean you can do both if you wanted and again it's lovely having this you know free out of the box essentially you know you have your relational database oh it'd really be nice if i could have some unstructured data like you were saying yeah. and you can Awesome. So one other thing that I think is like the shackles that keep me attached to my SQL <laughs> is just my like complete love for SQL Pro. <laughs> so what tools do you use? Um, like GUI tools and stuff do you use to work with Postgres that you really like? Yeah, see, this is this is the thing. And actually, Mickey, one of the pe- uh, one of the hosts on Three Days, he's the same where it's like he, st- he loves SQL Pro. <laughs> I think it's PG admin is their like free, you know, I mean, I know you've got like MySQL workbench and things, but PG admin is their kind of out the box thing. I use Navicat, which is a paid for product, um, but it's the best I've found. Um, a lot of people at work just are hardcore and they just use the command line. Yeah. I, I do love a GUI. I, I, for database, I love it. I love the autocomplete and things like that. It's just nice to be able to have that. So, yeah, I mean, it, the, the tooling around that is, you know, I mean, there are a couple of free ones. Like there are a couple of, like I know, open source uh, Postgres um, specific GitHub. I know there's one on GitHub that they use that um, someone's open source. I'll put that in the show notes for you as well. Okay. And, um, and you know, which is okay. It's not the best. I, I don't personally don't feel, but it's because I've been using Navicat for so uh, so long that I've kind of just grown accustomed to it. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I'm looking at Navicat now. I've, I I feel like I remember looking at it and it just looking like a crappy like Java app, you know, that's like the same on every... It's... It's weird, right? Yeah, because I, I I started using it when it was the, using for my sequel in my old job. And I used to think, I was like, oh, this is horrible. It must be a good alternative. And I could never find something that just worked like Navicat worked for me. And it, I think that's maybe just for my mind. It just works the way it, I want it to. And I think for me, really, all I really want is just a rich text editor. Uh, which allows me to sure. input that with autocomplete that gives me an, a, a way to execute a query and return it in a nice way. Um, you know, the term, I should say actually though, the Postgres terminal stuff's great. I mean, there is some really nice stuff there, but I still love a good rich text editor yeah. for things like this right and like syntax highlighting and stuff. I mean, I know you can, you can with Postgres like pipe out into Vim if you're really hardcore wow. and want to be able to use Vim and then go <laughs> back in and stuff. But yeah, that's not for me. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So maybe to kind of start wrapping it up, uh, we haven't talked about this at all, but what are some things that you don't like about Postgres? So what are you, th- are, are any things that you think are, are challenging or things that you think could still be improved? I think the first, the, the thing that drove me, like w- along with the fact that everyone, it, the LAMP stack is my sequel. I think maybe it was, I think the popularity of it is, 
you know it's like it's kind of nice because once you're in the postgres club of thinking oh this is cool you know and like everyone uses MySQL, but postgres is really you know you get that kind of yeah this is awesome but i feel because it's not as popular you know you don't have as much resources about it and also there wasn't much community i felt around setting it up easily until there's like a i don't know whether you've seen it like the, there's a mac app uh, the postgres.app and it's essentially just it sets up a, My, a postgres instance on your box uh, just for a one-click, in, you know, it's just a one-click app and it loads up a Postgres instance that you can then interface with. And that was really the only thing for me, which was setting it up. Like if you wanted a quick setup to explore Postgres, but now you, you get it out of the box. And also things like Homestead and things like that, I'm sure they, they have Postgres out of the box. So yeah, this, that has kind of gone away. This Postgres.app looks interesting because uh, I, I do use virtual machines like pretty often, but if I'm just working on something simple, I really do just prefer to run it on my Mac like a That's, heathen. But. Yeah, exactly. You can actually, yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, I mean, it's nice and sometimes exploring. I mean, I, I've been exploring a lot of the different things with Postgres and stuff. Like, and now that I've tried to got in, into it more and things like... Uh, like, there's these other things like CTEs, common table expressions, which I, as a programmer, I'm sure you'll love as well. Like it allows you essentially to make a, a temporary table so you can have with a declared beautiful name, you know, like here's my jobs with this. This is my jobs. This is the query to get them. And then you're able to use that and as an alias essentially to another query. And you're able to build up and slowly build up these. It's almost like private hel- helper functions, I call them, think of them, where you can build up these queries that are beasts where there would be in, you know, inner clauses where it would just be like, oh, this is a you know so you have like sub queries and it would just be horrible spaghetti code but you're able to almost break it out into helper functions i find that that, that's the way they do it um and that isn't i'm sadly not available in my sequel um and then other things like window functions and windowing functions are probably that's the thing i should mention um for anyone who they are like they are scary they are scarily powerful and confusing but once you learn them you love them um they do stuff that again you would think you'd have to do in code um such as you know in the case of maybe okay so i want to run a month by month report um and i want to know if you know that uh, you know january you know to each month was it an increase or decrease what profit did we get or something now to do that to compare between you know from my you know my value to another value i in SQL, I know it's been uh, in my SQL. I know it can be done because I've seen some very complex. But with windowing functions, you essentially are able to get get from this row. So from each from your row set, go through your row set, and based on certain criteria, use the other criteria. So you can say, okay, I want to know before me lag, but by one, you know, what was the, the the value there? What's my current value? And I can you know compare it based on that. I probably not do it as good a service, but windowing functions are people in the in the Postgres world. They are loved completely i know the one thing that mysql would be it'd be great to have awesome so we've talked about a lot of different um kind of cool things that you can do with postgres but if you had to like kind of summarize why you love working in postgres over mysql to kind of finish the show how would you do it (laughs) oh that's hard um i think for me it's it's the data types um you know it's it's the fact that i have the uids booleans and and you know all these different i think it's more i i I always have considered it a more developer database where as a developer i want these cool things i want to be able to do these functions like you know exploding on things and string to an array and things like that and and you can do that within these queries now i know that leaks again you can then think oh but you're going to start piping a lot of stuff into your sql 
and you you I, I go by the fact that I find something, I exploit it, I probably do it too much, and I then go back. You know, I, I, I you know, it's that kind of way. You know, of like, oh, this is really cool. I'm going to use it all, all the time. And I have done that in the past, and and I have now leaned back a bit of thinking, okay, right, well, and it again, it depends. Um, but it's great to have that power and being able to do that within the, you know, within a database. Um, so yeah, uh, for me, I think it is the data types that really win out, and and the with clause, like common table expressions, just blows my mind. I've only just realised about it the last couple of months, but the way that I way I think about you know programming with small, concise helper methods, essentially, you know, building up to a, a common goal, which has got nice clear names, you can do that within within SQL, and you can actually then read SQL as if you were kind of building up a story of what's going on, which is great. Awesome, man. Well. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or plug or anything before we get going? No, no. I would just say thank you again for inviting me on. It's been great. It's been really interesting being this side. <laughs> yeah, man. My pleasure. It's really good. I learned a lot of stuff and I'm excited to uh, to dive into Postgres a little bit more. So Brilliant. Awesome. So if anybody is interested in show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 40. If you can rate and review the show on iTunes, that's always helpful getting us in front of more people. And thanks again to Laracast and Rollbar for sponsoring the show. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.